Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and I'm a PT assistant. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Abbasi, who is one of the nation's leading spine surgeons. He works for Inspired Spine, based out of Minnesota, but they also have locations other places throughout the country. He specializes in minimally invasive spine surgeries and was one of the most experienced surgeons that performs the OLIF procedure. He is also the only surgeon currently performing the minimally invasive thoracic interbody fusion. So without further ado, here's Dr. Abbasi. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Abbasi. It's my pleasure to be with you. So our first question today is, what is the OLIF lumbar fusion and what makes someone a good candidate for it? Well, OLIF lumbar fusion is a method of uh, making a bad disc uh, go away. Um, but the way I describe to my patient, our spine is made of bone and disc, and a disc is like a tire of a car. Obviously, we try to save the discs, and we very often we try to help the patient without the surgery. And sometimes, if you have a bad tire, what happens, you go and patch the tire. But now imagine your tire is so old, so bad, that has many holes. It's really no good way to repair that tire, unfortunately, uh, until now. Our standard of care is to get completely rid of that tire. That process is called fusion. In the process of fusion, often what we do is, uh, first of all, the first thing we do is we get to that bad disc. And since the disc is in the middle of our body, sometimes uh, that process itself is extremely invasive and cause a lot of collateral damage. Olive or oblique lateral post Serial lumbar interbody fusion is a method of the surgery that we get to the bad disc with a tube that is barely thicker than a pencil. And by doing it through a smaller hole, it enables us to not cause lots of collateral damage, to get to the bad disc, get the bad disc out. And then in this process, we usually put a spacer in. We call that spacer a cage, which elevates, separate two bone against each other and as such, restores the disc the, or disc base to the way it was supposed to be. This is now practically a method of the surgery that has been developed in the last 12 years. And the advantage of this to the other ways of getting to the disc is exactly that we use a tube that is barely thicker than a pencil and not cause all the collateral damage that other methods produce to get to a disc base. Those other ways is either from the back where we not figuratively, but literally fillet you open and cut all the muscles, which then in uh, turn, they become scarred. They are not useful muscles anymore or go through the belly, through the abdominal cavity where major vessels, major organs are, uh, you have to go through major um, vessels and major abdominal organ to get the job done. So by, uh, being able to cause the least amount of damage to get to the disc, we get a lot of benefit and lot uh, benefit for the patient in terms of uh, restoring their anatomy with uh, less damage to surrounding tissue, faster recovery, less blood loss. And that is what Olive enables us to do. So what makes someone a good candidate to have the surgery? Anybody who has been told that they need a spinal fusion um, generally, they are good candidates for the OLIF. Now, in certain situations, if they need a spinal fusion, 
if the piece of bone pushing on the nerves, sometimes still necessary for us to go there and cut the bone. But beside that, except that somebody has a piece of bone sticking into their spinal canal or where the nerves are traversing, um, almost all of the other spinal uh, candidate for spinal fusion are good candidate for all this. In most of the cases, that comes to people who have tried all the non-surgical treatment, including physical therapy and injections. And what the problem is, is cannot be just eliminated by just trimming the disc. Sure. So what things do you try with patients before performing a lumbar fusion surgery? practically everything. Now, generally, uh, this is like a tire of a car, but it's a living tissue. And our body is generally is a self-healing machine. We, our body, our tissue, our discs are living things. And uh, my, our, every process in our body is a race between healing process and wear and tear. Many times when the wear and tear go ahead of the healing process is when we have symptoms in our musculoskeletal symptoms. And we have musculoskeletal symptoms. Now, um, our job as surgeons is first maximize non-surgical methods to help the patient. And many of them, many of them include protecting the tissue so they can heal better. Like the way I describe it to my patient, if you have a wound in your hand, and you poke in it, it's just not going to heal. There are ways to put your spine in a, in a situation that is most suitable for its healing. Obviously, imagine you break your arm, you put it in a, in a brace or you put it in a sling, you don't use it. There is really no situation you don't use your spine. That's unfortunate because it has to heal under continuous use. But there are ways to support it, like we give you a list of things not to do. We send the patient to physical therapy to build up muscle around the spine. For those activities that are demanding or you cannot avoid, we put you in a brace. As well, we do injections. We put you uh, in a situation that your body, your disc, your tissue around the spine get a shot of steroid. Steroid is a hormone your body produces when it's trying to heal things. We give it artificially to those areas and by doing that, we put the spine in the most suitable situation to heal. Unfortunately for many patients, all of that is not enough. That is when the surgery becomes the next option. So what are the major signs that indicate that someone needs surgery? Well, uh, most, of the, most of the time, the symptoms that your body communicate to you something is wrong is pain. Um, I compare pain to the noise of a smoke alarm because it is, it is a signal, it is a, truly a signal that something is wrong and we should do something about it. And, and uh, if we don't uh, literally correct the situation, then our body uh, start giving us more and more pain until we listen to that. In the spine, the nerves that convey the pain are very close to the nerve that convey our feeling or strength or communicate to our uh, muscles practically, the next step is numbness, tingling, that we don't feel things right. And if uh, after that, the nerves that go to our muscle, they go out, and those nerves, uh, we call that alpha motor neuron, or 
they're special neurons, they're very thick, they're very resilient. By the time they go out, that means that the situation has become more serious. That is uh, why weakness is something that we take very seriously in the management of spine. And uh, we try to avoid, we try to treat the patient before they have weakness. Would you mind explaining to our audience what the difference is between these three type of back surgeries I'm going to list? So the first one is microdiscectomies, a disc replacement, and the OLIF lumbar fusion. Yeah, absolutely. I love to. Now, um, we talked about the um, tire of a car, that our spine is like a tire of a car. Imagine if you have a flat tire, you might have one hole in that tire. And then, or part of the disc or part of the content of the disc is bulging out. Macrodiscectomy is more comparable to patching that tire. Going there, what part of the tire that pushes out or what part of the disc that pushes out against the nerve causing symptoms, we go and trim it. Many times we follow the hole because inside of the disc, contrary to a tire, is not air. Is soft, very soft tissue. We call that nucleus pulposus. It's something that looks like a crab meat, something that is soft, jelly-like. And in a macrodiscectomy, first of all, we make an incision. We go to the bone. We cut. We make a window in the bone to get access to the disc space. Once we have access to the disc space, we remove the part of the disc that has come out of the disc and pushing on the nerve. And most of my colleagues and I, myself, we then follow. We follow the hole that where the material came out. And we go inside of the disc. We remove the loose part of the disc. So next time patient stands up, not more material comes out. And this is a very effective uh, treatment. If practically you're a young person, you have one hole in the disc, a piece of disc material came out, pushed on the nerve, and, but the disc integrity is overall intact. Especially if the leg pain is the main symptoms, this can be a very effective way of treating the symptoms and the disc. If the disc has like 10 holes, the whole disc is slashed open and the back pain is much worse than the leg pain, it still could be an option in certain situations, but then we have other options that are probably more suitable. So what would be a, you want to describe a disc replacement? Absolutely. See, um, a, a, a disc is like a joint, like, a, um, like something that separates two bones against each other and make them um, move against each other. We have other joints, like we have joint in your knee, we have joint in your hip, and, uh, and everybody knows about the disc replacement for those joints, like a knee or hip. They are very common, very routine procedures. Now, com comparing to the spine, those joints are simple joints. Especially the way we look at them, those are joints that um, the center of the motion in the disc, in, in the joint is fixed. Spine has actually not a single center of uh, motion, meaning that while you're bending forward, the point it pivoting around, it actually moves with it. It's a very complex joint. For that reason, the artificial discs, even though they exist for the spine, they have not become the most prevalent way of treating that. As a matter of fact, we say that spine is a complex three-part joint. 
Most of the artificial disc in the spine, they replace only one part. And that sort of put a lot of stress on the other two joints, which are the right and the left facet. Naturally, everybody wants you know, to restore the function. And so for that reason, artificial joint in the spine are a, are a big word and it's a big marketing word. And people really try to say, yeah, we'll replace, we restore the, um, this. Um, unfortunately, the technology is not far enough to truly for us to be able to replace an artificial joint in the spine. Contrary to knee and hip, artificial joint in the spine are very in a rudimentary stage. As a matter of fact, the most recent uh, uh, paper that came out about the artificial disc in the neck, that in this five to seven years, they are equal, not better than fusion. In the lumbar spine, most indications are that they are not as good as fusion. So they are um, going to improve in the future, but at this point, in the neck, artificial discs are equal to fusion based on all the information we have. And in the lumbar spine, they are not superior, but inferior to fusion. We, sometimes the motion is the problem. An artificial disc by design, they keep the motion. And if, for example, your facet, your joint, your bone spurs, your, is the problem, by keeping the motion, you don't fix the problem and the problem goes on. I'm hoping that in my lifetime, we make huge advances in this, uh, in this field and artificial discs become more na nature-like. But at this point, standard of the care for when your disc is so bad that needs to completely be removed is a fusion. Fusion has a bad reputation, not because of the result of the fusion, but because of all the collateral damage we cause, we surgeon cause when we do the fusion. And the minimal invasive uh, fusions are supposed and are very successful to counteract those downside of fusion. So it has been said to wait as long as possible before having any type of surgery. What would be the major red flags to let someone know that they should get a back surgery? Um, now, as we talked about, pain is a signal that something wrong. Pain by itself is uh, not the problem, but sign that something else is the problem. And pain is going to tell us that if you don't take care of it, you will have other problems. So, and that answers your question. Anything beside pain, like all of a sudden you cannot feel your legs or you cannot move your legs. You have weakness, you have tingling, you have numbness, you have bladder bowel incontinent, you have other problems beyond pain, indicate that your body gave you the signal, nothing really good happened, and now the damage that your body was warning you about is about to happen. So especially weakness and uh, bladder ball incontinent, problem walking, like balance thing and so on. These are signs that your body warned you already is now the damage that your body was warning you about is about to happen. What, what happens when you see people like that? Yeah, in many cases, thanks God our technology is so advanced, we still can reverse the process. We can take the pressure off, stabilize the spine, and reverse the process. Um, but sometimes, especially if people have become like incoordinated, they cannot control their hands and arms. We have a name for, for that. Especially if the spinal the pressure is in the area 
in the thoracic, in the chest or neck, where the pressure actually damaged the nerves, then there is this, uh, this picture, we call that myelopathy, meaning that the nerves inside of our spinal cord start to die. Unfortunately, when that happens, that becomes an emergency and we sometimes cannot reverse that. But many times uh, we can so at least stop, hold, or sometimes reverse the process by taking the pressure of the nerve and the spinal cord. In those cases, we just speed up the process, take the patient to the surgery, take the pressure off the spinal cord. Sure. So that's a good warning sign for any listeners. If you're having those problems, you should get them checked out sooner than later. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about osteoporosis in surgery. So how bad does osteoporosis need to be before you cannot perform surgery? Now let's talk about first what osteoporosis is. When we are born, we have nice young bones and are made of lots of cells going there, building a, a practically a meshwork of tissue and then we deposit calcium or calcium appetite or some minerals in that meshwork to make it stronger. Like imagine you put a, a, a meshwork of metal and then you pour, pour cement in it and then you have this fantastic uh, 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 concrete structure that is very strong. Now our body is a living thing. Constantly we put material in and out. That material that we put in and out is mostly some calcium minerals. And when we get older, unfortunately, we take more out than we put in. That becomes like a very porous, very uh, not solid concrete. Imagine that it doesn't take much pressure. It cannot, uh, it, it's not very stable. Like you, when you fall, it's more likely that you break your bones when your bones don't have as much calcium as you were when you were in your 20s. Unfortunately, that's a process that happens to everybody, especially if, uh, females, uh, ladies, uh, after, uh, you know, when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, that process is accelerated. And that weak bone is called osteoporosis, or if it's worse, we call it osteopenia. And that um, makes the bone weaker as general for any kind of stress. Now, that's not the only problem. One of the major problems of the spine surgery is that when we cut the muscles that are around the bone, we reduce the amount of the blood supply to the bone because this blood supply of the bone is through surrounding muscles. And in a regular surgery, we literally strip all those muscles. We fillet the bo bone and then that bone doesn't get enough blood supply. As a matter of fact, in a regular surgery, when we go from the back of the spine, we reduce the vascularization of the bone to 25% of the original value because we remove 75% of the muscle and vessel that bring blood and nutrition to our bones. That is bad for any kind of situation even if you don't have osteoporosis. But if you have osteoporosis, literally that becomes an unhealable situation where your bone, your bone is weak and it doesn't get enough blood supply to heal afterward. So 
there, are, there is not a certain one certain value that when we make a decision, this is too bad for us to do surgery. But we know that people with osteoporosis, they have a lot more problem after surgery. Now, it happens to be that after our surgery, we don't cut the muscle, we don't reduce the blood supply. So patients with olive procedure have the best chance, best, best odds of recovering after the surgery. But still, that is a decision that the patient and the doctor make together based on what kind of surgery is needed and how bad the osteoporosis is. Whereas uh, for open surgery, practical osteoporosis, it's, it's better not to do the surgery with a minimal invasive, what we call muscle sparing. There are some other methods of muscle sparing technique where we don't cut the muscle in the back. With those, surgery is still an option, but it's an individually tailored kind of approach to, for patient's problem. Have you ever worked with someone with a compression fracture? Very much so. I just had three patients today that have compression fracture that I saw in my clinic. Right now I'm in clinic. This is a very common situation. Compression fracture, if you imagine that we are, our body, our spine is made of bone and disc, and with, when the bone becomes weaker, with osteoporosis, if you fall, the bone collapses in, 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 in themselves like an accordion. They, they compress and become less, the height of the uh, bone become less, and we call that compression fracture. Unfortunately, that's a common situation. And many of these patients, obviously, uh, the bone doesn't become bigger anymore. So people shrink, actually, with time. But many times, beside that, they have maybe initial pain and it gets better. Many of these patients I treat, just, I put them just in a brace. Sometimes, if the bone compresses to a point that the healing is prolonged or pain doesn't go away, we even go in with a needle that is a thicker needle, but we then we put it inside of the, the inside of the bone, and we put a kind of plastic that becomes a fully hard plastic inside of your body. We call that polymetometacrylate, and um, that helps many of our patients. Uh, inside of your body, we strengthen the bone, and the pain goes away. So in some cases, there's not enough bone to do that, or the situation is worse than that, then we go actually, we fuse the back, meaning that we add metal and other material that breach the weak bone, so your weight doesn't go all through the bone, and that is a fusion. Uh, thankfully, not uh, most of these patients don't need that, but if they need that, not cutting the muscle and the bone is the best way of treating them because that would add more uh, uh, damage to the already damaged tissue. Okay. Yeah, I, I worked with a woman once years ago who had the procedure where they put in the plastic-type material to uh, hold in her compression fracture because she had all sorts of back issues. Yeah, that is exactly the second thing I described besides bracing that we go with the needle, we add some kind of plastic inside of the... That procedure called is called vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty. That is a commonly performed procedure, and we perform that procedure as well. Okay. So we're going to switch to talking about back pain and hip pain. So how do you differentiate between hip pain and back pain if it's being caused by the spine? Yeah, you know, 
That is a good question. And we go, I, I went 23 years to school to be able to distinguish that. It's a combination of symptoms, tests, imaging that enable you to, to distinguish between one versus another. Because the way I describe it to my patient, the problem could be the hip or the problem could be the nerve that goes from your spine to the hip. Now, it just happened if it is the hip, the symptoms are mostly localized to the hip or some nerves that go around the hip, whereas if it's your spine, a more complex kind of picture can appear. Now, sometimes it's even the problem, the part where the spine and the hip are joining. We call that joint sacroiliac joint. And especially in the lower spine and the sacroiliac joint, they are so close to each other, the symptoms can be very confusing, very similar. Generally, in a situation like that, obviously, we get films. We look inside how your hip looked like, how your sacroiliac joint looked like, how your spine looked like. But often, especially if the problem is the sacroiliac joint or where the spine and the pelvis are joining, the, we do as well, we put a needle in and numb up one area or another area to see which one gives patient improvement. And that is a good way of distinguishing between if it's a spine problem or it's a hip problem or it's a sacroiliac joint problem. We call that diagnostic injections. If someone has really bad SI joint dysfunction, do you perform any type of surgeries for that? Absolutely. For a long time, at least uh, you know, for the last 80 years, we knew that sacroiliac joint or where the spine and the pelvis are joining together can be a problem, but we didn't have really good options. Sometimes our treatment was worse than the disease itself. But in the last 15 years, we have found a very good way of treating sacroiliac joint meaning once we are sure the problem is the sacroiliac joint and that requires exam, provoking the joint and then even numbing it up to see if every time we numb it up, 75% of the pain goes away, even while numb, meaning maybe day or two, or even half a day. But once we discover or diagnose that the sacroiliac joint is the problem, now we have a very good option. What we do is practically making the sacroiliac joint stop moving. We go from the side, from the buttock, from the side, we put two or three screws in, make it stop moving. Now, it's important to know that the sacroiliac joint doesn't have much of a function in our body anyways. The only time sacroiliac joint has a physiologic option is to open up the pelvis just a touch for the baby to pass through, through the um, birth process. Many times, once we make it stop moving, my patient tell me that their pain is completely gone. As a matter of fact, there's another week when I don't see a patient that um, the problem is the sacroiliac joint diffused it and they come back ecstatic because their pain is gone. Especially that expertise to treat the sacroiliac joint is not a common expertise among the spine surgeon. And many times that problem is missed. Many of these patients, they go to doctor, they look at their spine, they tell them there's nothing wrong with you. And they're right, there's nothing wrong with the spine but they don't look into the sacroiliac joint. This is even more aggravated because the sacroiliac joint is not a picture diagnosis. You cannot get a picture alone to show that the pro that's a problem because every sacroiliac joint looks a little differently. And if you don't provoke it, if you don't numb it up, you don't sometimes diagnose it properly. Is there a way someone can kind of test on themselves if the pain is coming from their SI joint? 
There are a few ways to do that. First of all, many of these patients, they are younger female, especially after they have given birth to a baby, the rate of sacroiliacion is seven times higher. But as well, they notice that when they turn from side to side, especially in the night, that uh, it becomes very painful. Many of them had a mild trauma, like falling or stepping on something. Many of them, they are telling me when they go stairs up or go uphill, the pain gets worse especially when they start twisting their back. But as well, uh, if you, one of the easiest thing to provoke the sacroiliac joint is if you put your uh, ankle on your knee on one side, you're practically distracting the sacroiliac joint on the side that you put your ankle up. And that can be a, 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 sometimes a test to see if the sacroiliac joint provoking that test. But at the end of the day, you have to numb up that sacroiliac joint to see if the pain improves with numbing up that joint temporarily. And then we know that's where the pain generator is. Okay. Are there any other topics you would like to discuss with us today? Yes. Um, actually, I think uh, one of the most important things um, in the treatment of the spines are lots of people who are marginalized now, spine surgery is a big deal. You know, it has a lots of uh, complication because spine is in the middle of our body. We have to work hard to get in. And as, as well, we describe in a traditional surgery, we cause a lot of collateral damage. And that practically excludes a lot of people like elderly, people with osteoporosis or people who are obese. Today, actually, I saw a patient with a BMI of 52. You know, I, I'm assuming your BMI is between 24 and 26, something like that. And mine is about 28, 29. So people with BMI of above 35, they are practically, um, they have a lot of tissue to go through. And when you get to BMI of 40, as a matter of fact, most of our societies recommend not to do surgery because the damage you cause is worse than the problem itself. But, um, and these people, they are just told they have to live with the pain. Now, this is a sad story because many of these patients, they come to me and they're so in pain, they're so miserable. They tell me if it's all what is left, I don't want to live with that. Many of these patients become suicidal. You can understand that if you're in pain, uh, at such a pain and nobody can help you, you become suicidal. Many of these patients, we push them uh, with pain management and we make them narcotic uh, uh, dependent. Now, I think that is very important that many of these patients now, right now, come from the entire United States to me, to us, because we can treat them. We published a paper that we can treat them as efficient as somebody with a lower BMI without additional associated risks. So practically, we can help this, this patient now. And uh, our societies, unfortunately, are not even uh, in, a, in a wide way aware of that. We can give this patient now an option. But this patient come to us all the time and we do the surgery, send them home next day. I just did six surgery in the last two days. Most of those patients are already home. And three of these patients, they had the BMI above 40 and 50 that we successfully treated. Guess where? In uh, Riverview Hospital in Crooks in a rural hospital where we have, we don't even have the, you know, all the uh, gadgets that the university would have. So we reduce the risk as such 
that we can not only we can treat these patients, we can treat them in a rural hospital. Oh, so they don't have to travel as far, huh? No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's that's normally problematic for most people that are pretty overweight yeah. like that. Another um, thing that uh, I want to make uh, everybody aware of that uh, you know, because what we are doing is so unique, we have a lots of need for new surgeons. Like in one week, surgeon coming from United Kingdom, from Ecuador, uh, two surgeons from United States. We teach. We have this program to teach these uh, patients the new way. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the surgeons, the new way of doing the surgery. And now we have a huge backlog of surgeons who want to come and see and learn that from us. But as well, uh, we are expanding now to Texas. So if you, if you're, uh, um, patients are interested, now we are, within the next few months, we are going to create an uh, offshoot of Inspired Spine in multiple states, but uh, our first place is Texas, where we treat the patient locally. Um, uh, I'm, Mike, you live in Midwest, right? You live in Minneapolis. Minnesota, correct? Yeah, we're in southeast Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. So you're familiar with the, the concept of snowbirds, right? Many yep. of our retired people, they don't want to spend the winters here. They go south for sunnier places. And now in those sunnier places, we are creating an offshoot satellite of inspired spine so we can treat our patient and their patient in their places. The next place is going to be very close to Austin. Texas, where we treat our patient in the future. Oh, Bob said he's going to be a snowbird and he retires. Oh, well, then <laughs> ask him to go to Texas. I'm going to <laughs> reserve a very nice place in the, the hill country close to Austin. It's a fantastic place to be. Okay, I'll tell him. All right, uh, where can people go to find more information about you and your clinics and where they can sign up to meet you? Well, um, it's actually, if you... Just put these five letters, O-L-L-I-F, double L. You uh, will see that 90% uh, of the material in the internet is what we put out there. They have published paper. And if you, people go to YouTube and put like O-L-L-I-F, you will have 1,200 testimonial of patients who have been treated. And I put the average of everything, you know, like literally you can sit in front of the YouTube and go hours down, scroll down, and you see our patient put your condition like OLLIF spondylolisthesis or OLLIF elderly OLLIF spondylolisthesis you get more testimonials informational material regarding that or they can go to inspiredspine.org or inspiredspine.com and they get all information regarding us um, we get uh, in average uh, about a dozen of patients every week from other states that we uh, go online and long before people knew about the Zoom and before COVID, we have been having this uh, Zoom and internet consultation helping patients all across the U.S. and even world. So where are your clinics currently located? At this point, we have a clinic in um, Burnsville, Minnesota, which is about uh, 10 minutes south of uh, Minneapolis and Minneapolis Airport. We have a clinic in Alexandria, Minnesota. We have a clinic in Crookston, and now we have partners in multiple states, including Michigan, uh, in Texas, El Paso, in the East Coast, and hopefully very soon, Austin, Texas. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today. Do you have any last remarks? No. It has been a pleasure always to be with you. 
and uh, let uh, Bob know that I'm going to reserve one of those luxury um, apartment in Austin for him. Okay, I'll tell him and his wife. She better get ready for it. Well, thank you very much, Mike. You're welcome.